What is going on, guys? This is Brendan Burns, and welcome to The Brendan Burns Show. Join me as I interview, dissect, and share the stories of high performers who have created the life that they deserve on their terms. I sit down with speakers, professional athletes, and successful entrepreneurs from all over the world who have chosen to live a life of fulfillment and joy over status and money. In each episode, I share actionable strategies that you can implement in your life, plus inspiration along the way. So come join me for this episode of The Brendan Burns Show. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of The Brendan Burns Show. Joining me today is Claudia Christian. Now, Claudia is an American actress, singer, probably best known for her role as Commander Susan Ivana. Ivanova on the science fiction television series Babylon 5. She's also voiced several characters for the Bethesda software, Softworks, video games, Skyrim, and Fallout 4. Her main charity and the reason why I reached out is her work in publicizing the Sinclair Method as a cure for alcoholism and her documentary called One Little Pill. Claudia, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And Happy New Year. <laughs> yes. Happy New Year to you and to all. And Claudia, I really want to dedicate the majority of our conversation to talking about what is the Sinclair Method and how can it help people battling addiction. But before we dive into that, if you could share a little bit about your background, your childhood, your upbringing, and what sort of led you to your career as a professional entertainer. Oh, um, well, basically, I, I came from a family of uh, uh, three older brothers. Um, so I was the little sister who nobody listened to. I was quite shy um, and scared of them, <laughs> frankly. Uh, but um, eventually it led to a theater class. Make a long story short, I took that theater class. I started performing in plays. I loved it. Um, I had this very strange sense of, um, I loved books. I loved imagination. And I, and I thought, honestly, I thought that when my dad got transferred to, uh, to California, that it was because I needed to be on TV. <laughs> so, you know, I was, I was kind of a, a mystical child to say the least. Um, we moved there when I was, uh, just before my 14th birthday. And I started, I just, I just knew exactly what I wanted to do. I found a manager randomly. I started stealing my parents' car and driving to Los Angeles to meet go on meetings and pretending that I was 18, you know, uh, the whole bit. And then of course, um, I did, I did find a manager and she found out that I wasn't 18. But by that point I had had so much experience and confidence under my belt, just from modeling and from getting odd jobs and things like that and living on my own at 16 that I, um, the first series I went up for, I booked. So it was, it was just, uh, it was just a progression. And to me, it seems really natural nowadays when I look back on it, I feel like, it was bizarrely um, <laughs> uh, easy, I guess you would say. I mean, I, I worked hard as the you know preamble to it, but but um, it all fell into place to make that more logical. It just it just sort of was meant to be. Um, mm -hmm. And I've been uh, acting on uh, television and film since 1983, so that's over 35 years, um, and uh, in theater longer than that. And I've continued to work as an actress and as a voice artist, and I love to write books still. And but everything kind of came to a head for me when I realized that. Yeah. 
and mental uh, things in nature are our, our brain disorders, uh, everything from anorexia to bipolar are treated as something that includes a huge amount of shame and stigma. And, mm. and I thought, why? <laughs> why, 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 if we find something that works for us, why shouldn't we be screaming from the rooftops? Just the same as somebody with diabetes would be screaming from the rooftop if they could take some magical little pill and never have to sh shoot insulin again or check all day long. You know, I mean, if it just made their lives easier and, and more complete and allowed them to live the life that they want to live, why wouldn't you want to share that instead of burying that information? And that's, I didn't understand the anonymous quality of, of, of uh, you know, meetings or anything like that. I thought, well, if something works, then it's your obligation as a human being to share it so that yes. you can help others. So that long-winded story led me to, of course, you reaching out to me because of the Sinclair method. Yes, and and, and that is, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, thank you. That that's fantastic. And I really want to talk a lot about like why uh, the Sinclair method is not uh, shared as widely as it should be. But first. Can you just talk a little bit about um, you getting involved with alcohol? Just because there's some listeners who might be drinking socially, but actually it might be more compulsive to help sort of diagnose the problem before we talk about the treatment. Well, that, the, the thing that the reason why we don't just say alcoholism nowadays, we say alcohol use disorder is because there's such a myriad of different issues involved with it. For instance, you have the college kid uh, binge drinking three days a, a, a week, but, you know, getting straight A's and, and not drinking in the morning and not, you know, that's one person. Then you have the, you know, mommy and me, five o'clock, you know, mother of two toddlers who, yeah. who wine o'clock um, start pouring the Chardonnay every mm -hmm. single day. Mm -hmm. And maybe that if they're in their thirties, that might lead to them suddenly wanting a little pick me up in the morning. Then, then you also have people who are biological uh, addicts, um, meaning that they, they have the genetic predisposition and then they engage in the behavior. So to explain my, my background was that, um, and it, it, it is rather unfortunate because I've, through the years, I've learned so much from researchers that have been so generous with me with their time and, and information and scientists who I've just cold called or emailed saying, but I don't understand this and this. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and there is, there, there are lots of different beliefs and, and, and research on this, but I have noticed that if you have the genetic predisposition towards alcohol misuse and you drink before the human brain is fully developed, which is around 21, 22 years old, I do honestly believe just from personal experience seeing it, those people will have a much higher chance of developing an alcohol use disorder. So if, if somebody gives, you know, Uncle Tommy gives eight-year-old Joey a little nip of whiskey for the fun of it, at Christmas time, that you could be triggering something that eventually could you know, destroy that young boy's life. And I'm not being dramatic here. I've, I've seen yeah. the results. People, people who simply don't, they don't drink until their, their brain is fully formed. Seems like they have much less chance of, of abusing alcohol in the future. So in my house, there was, um, my, my dad went uh, sober in his forties. Um, 
simply because he has hep C. So, and he decided he would have to drink for work. And he just didn't, he, he had a hangover one day and he said, I don't even know why I'm doing this. And he just quit like cold turkey. That was, but it was, he wasn't, he always understood that he had a, a liver issue with his hepatitis C, which he got from heart surgery. So, mm-hmm. um, so he was careful about his health. My mother was very much a light drinker. Uh, never seen her, you know, drinking in the morning or drunk or anything like that. Um, we would have wine uh, because, you know, she's from Germany. So there would be watered down wine for kids or we could taste things. And, but there was never abuse in the family. It wasn't, in, it wasn't until, um, it wasn't until I became, uh, gosh, my really early, early forties. So that had nothing to do with my, that's not environmental in my opinion. I don't believe that's in, in, I mean, yes, there was, there was beer and wine, but it was still in the fridge. We weren't all sneaking stuff. You know, we weren't, we weren't physically addicted. We weren't saying, oh, the parents are gone. Let's go raid the bar. There was none of that sort of behavior at all. I mean, I had the normal, um, you know, teenage experiences of drinking too much or, or dating somebody older and, and them alcohol being a, a part of the issue. And that of course led to negative things in my life as well but I wouldn't say that my home life had any impact on that because there wasn't an alcohol an active alcoholic as a parental figure nor mm-hmm. was there an active alcoholic as a sibling or mm-hmm. uncle you know I mean I, what little I know now um, the few people in my family that were alcoholic by the time I became of an age where I could recognize something like that they were either sober or not doing it in front of the kids so mm-hmm. so in other words there was there was just there's no reference to the bad aunt you know falling down and and hurling abuses at the child or or the you know the classic syndromes that you say oh you're the kid of an alcohol that that didn't exist for me what happened to me was I had I had bad genes I mean there's there's three children now in my family um, one brother passed but out of the three two of us got the addictive gene. The other one is fine. He can drink and, you know, he's fine. He can have a glass and go, eh, I'm done. Like, yeah. a, nor- like a normie, as we say. Yeah, norm- more like a normie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so um, you know, you, you can argue this until you're blue in the face and, and you can say, well, was it a traumatic experience or was it a, a physiological issue? Um, are you only a biological addict? Did you drink because you were raped or your dad yelled at you? Bottom line is there's a medical way to treat the compulsion. And that's what yes. we're talking about. Yes. We're not talking about you know, if you need to talk to your therapist, that's great. If you need to, you know, if you had a crappy childhood or you have to work things out with your spouse or whatever, that's a whole different issue. That's something that you should absolutely um, engage in and, and, and search out. However, what we're talking about is just, will this pill, this inexpensive, generic, FDA-approved medication help fix your brain? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and I want to dive into that, naltrexone and the Sinclair method. But first, what I want to ask you about, which resonated so much with me, because on my recovery, I did every program. I went to seminars, Tony Robbins, life coach, therapist, like literally thousands and thousands of dollars and years of yeah. just not having a solution. 
and then literally watching you say the same thing on your documentary, One Little Pill, for listeners <laughs> who haven't watched it yet, go watch it now. But what was your experience like with alcohol use disorder and the sort of traditional, the AA, the big book, and everything you're supposed to do? Ver, you know, before well, we talk about what did work for you. You know, uh, it, I, I don't want to diss any other method that works for anybody. And anybody yeah. who knows me knows that I have my exterior um, persona. You know, to be completely honest, I have in my entire life probably known or met one or two people that AA did work for. However, mm -hmm one of them did relapse after 20 years and the other one was chronically angry and what and i think caught in what's what's called the alcohol deprivation effect i don't like this expression but it's called a dry drunk mm -hmm. they became somebody who was a sugar addict a caffeine addict a nicotine addict Congrats, um, and yeah. they they isolated and they they just became a miserable person mm -hmm. now on the other hand they're alive they found a way to stay alive and that's that's terrific and if that's their choice wonderful and I know that people um, have wonderful communities of friends through abstinence-based programs, but there's also smart recovery. There's HAMS, there's lots of different programs that you can, you know, moderation management, you, that you can, you can attend in order to make friends that are like-minded. So, so that, that is a good thing that's happened now. For a very long time, all there was, was abstinence, AA, or death. Mm -hmm. And and when I think about how much more humane it was when my grandfather had to go into detox, I mean nowadays they throw you into detox, and and it's all about you know grandfather when years um, he'd get three give him a little bit less alcohol so he slowly tapered the body he was you know helped out in a, in a decent environment the nurses were were nice to him and he got out and there wasn't all this this heavy idea of it's all about your childhood and it's all about you and i'm not negating that i'm believe me i'm not saying that a lot of people drink to cover up what happened in their life or to suppress emotions. We talk about this all the time in my TSM monthly meetings is, you know, you, you keep pushing things down with alcohol, but for a lot, for another giant subset of people, it's just addiction. It's compulsive behavior. You, yeah. you can't, you can't rationalize it. That, that would be like me saying to you, why did you gamble your house away? Well, who, what normal person would do that? Who would, who would actually gamble their home away? And to a gambler, they would go, get, I get it. To an alcoholic, how, how could you drink and uh, while well, you're driving your child to school? Yeah. If you're an alcoholic, you get it. It's a compulsive disorder. And, and it doesn't mean that you're a bad person. It doesn't mean that you're morally bereft. It doesn't mean that you should be punished you know, um, it means that you should be helped in any way, shape or form that works for you. And that means options. That means, yes, it's wonderful. They have free meetings all around the world. But if meetings don't work for an individual, thank God they have medications now. It's called science, baby. There's now Trexone, <laughs> Baclofen. There's 
a camp for say to Pyramax. <laughs> I mean, now I'm a fiend, you know, um, yeah. and a combination gabapentin, combinations of them mm-hmm. that can help the individual go through cravings or, or mental games, also just through the physical discomfort, but also ones that undo the addiction in the brain. And that is what is so miraculous to me is that no longer do we have to wish it away or pray it away or think that we're just a bad person. If we can't make it go away, now we have another option. We can go to a doctor and say, you know what? I've done traditional treatment to death, but it's not working for me. And that doctor will say, well, how about trying this? How about trying a a combo of this? You know, and... Believe me, as I've said a million times before, I was never this Western medication pill popping. I, I never even took aspirin. I, I was always like, yo, you're taking an ibuprofen? No, you got to feel the pain and hydrate more. <laughs> you know, I mean, seriously, I was so, if I would have thought that a pill would save my life, then, you know, I, I would have been shocked back in the day. I was such a, a such a, I'm clean, man, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that, that, you know, now that I have friends who are diabetics and take statins for their heart issues and, and you know, high cholesterol or whatever, I realized that was really naive of me that there are things that, that we've developed that, that uh, you know, much like cleaning your hands before you <laughs> perform surgery, <laughs> which yeah. took, took hundreds of years to figure out. Yeah. You know, it's like, wow, okay, maybe we should step into uh, the future here. <laughs> yeah. No, and, and I love. Yeah. And I, and I love that you say that because I am also very like Eastern philosophy, like holistic health type person, try to go there first. And I, I was skeptical when I was like, oh, you know, medicating this. But so let's, but I just want to say that this works. And if it works, then I'm open to it, right? Like that's yeah. most important. You know? Yeah. I, and and here, here's the thing is that you and I both tried every available option. I mean, I went from the chanting, you know, to the praying to the hypnotherapy to the acupuncture to dramatic diet change veganism <laughs> macrobiotic i mean you know all of this stuff that people you know i was under the influence of every sh- shyster out there you know that was saying this is the cure and i would buy every book and i would try everything and i'd sit in meetings and Meetings made me want to drink. It was just so <laughs> depressing, so dire. You know, it was like yeah. everybody, it was like, a, you know, the, the old adage of a country and Western song in reverse, you know, well, oh, lost my wife, lost my dog. Lost my, you know, just, wow, okay. Um, and, and, and you're still, you know, identifying as an addict. And that, that, that to me was so unusual from my, from my the way I think is this, okay, my dad had a, he had heart surgery. He doesn't go around identifying himself as somebody who's a survivor of heart surgery. Right. My mother has had breast cancer twice. She doesn't go around saying, hi, I'm a survivor of breast cancer. Yeah. My brothers have had aneurysms and, and all sorts of, I mean, things have happened, but we don't go around saying, yeah, that's, that's who I am. I'm, this is, you know. So I thought, well, this is a medical condition and I don't want to go around the rest of my life holding up my hand saying, I'm an alcoholic. I believe in the power of words and I didn't want to be sick anymore. And I didn't want to, I didn't want that to be 
who I identify with. Ironically, of course, now that I've become an advocate, that is exactly <laughs> what everybody identifies me with. But that's okay. That's in a yeah. different manner. Right. Yeah, I'm using I'm using it to help other people. But you know what I'm saying. It's like you, you just kind of you don't want to continue to feel bad about yourself when you're having a good day. You don't want to go, oh yeah, I have to stand up and say I'm an alcoholic. Yes, absolutely. What a great way to think about it. Now Finally, what is the Sinclair Method? And also, how did you find it? Well, uh, in 2009, I went into um, a medical detox because I, I, I didn't, I was so, I don't know why I was so naive back then, but I really thought that if you drank too much to the point where you got sick, you have to stop drinking and just cold turkey it not even knowing about what my grandfather was doing in the, in the 40s. Now, I, I, I didn't know that until a few years ago, which were, you taper. You yeah. taper you taper off of it so your body can get used to it. You, you start doing exercise, you eat really healthy, and you just slowly eliminate it so your body doesn't go into shock. Right. And worse, you stroke out or die. So in this particular instance, um, I, I just went cold turkey and I started to really uh, feel bad and my body was losing motor control and that scared me to death i couldn't speak i couldn't walk i couldn't i, I couldn't get dressed I, I i was literally like like having spasms you know spasms um so i called and did manage to call a friend of mine and i said you got to come over now and she helped me go into a medical detox that was covered by my insurance and Make a long story short, that was a horrific experience. <laughs> um, but, I mean, just the worst. So as soon as I, I got some medication, which I didn't even know at that point that you could get medication to, to not feel the DTs or the, you know, any of that stuff. They, I think they gave me Trazodone or Valium or something. And suddenly I was like, wow, I feel so much better. Okay, I'm not shaking anymore. I didn't feel like I was a risk and I was having a miserable time there. So I just said, you know what, I'm going to check myself out because I'm, I can't sleep here. This is, this is, this is, this feels like it would be more detrimental, more hurtful to my own psyche and myself to, to, to stay here amongst these people who treated me that badly. So I checked myself out and on the way out, I found this little flyer for something called Vivitrol and I looked at it and it said it was a shot for people um, to reduce or stop drinking. And I called, I, by the time I got home, um, I called the detox place again and I said, so, you know, how do I get this Vivitrol shot that's $1,000 a month, which was ridiculous and I couldn't afford it, but I thought, hell, I'll do anything. And they didn't answer the phone and they continued to not return my calls. So now two, three, four days go by and I'm doing all this research online. I'm just saying, well, this is ridiculous. <laughs> They're not calling me back. So yeah. I, found, uh, I found out that the, the main ingredient is naltrexone in Vivitrol and that, that that shot would stay in your system for, for forever, but it, it would go in different increments and be released <coughs> time, time release. And that then I went to, to Google naltrexone and realized that that has a half-life of 10 to 12 hours. Coming from a family of doctors, I thought, well, that would be nice to be able to flush it out of your system and not have it in your system 24 hours a day because who wants to drink 24 <laughs> most of the time the cravings kick you know once once you the honeymoon period of sobriety wears off 
or maybe the, the craving kicks in its why would I want to block working out or making love or all the things that I enjoy? So anyway, um, once I Googled that, uh, Dr. Roy Escapa's book came up, The Cure for Alcoholism. Mm. And that came up and I quickly um, ordered a, a copy online and got the book and just read it and it made sense. It just really made sense to me. And, and I, uh, back then, Unbeknownst to me, there there were pretty much no doctors in the U.S. that would prescribe naltrexone in this manner, much less prescribe naltrexone at all. Um, I I now come to find out that there was one doctor, Dr. Stephen Cox, who has just been he's become a wonderful friend, and he's the president of the National Anxiety Foundation. He was a huge proponent of it because he was friends with Sinclair and Escapa. And he saw it in his own patients. He utilized it in his own patients and he saw the success rates. So, but he was in Lexington. How would I know? So, so at that point, um, since I called my, my GP and I said, uh, Hey, you know, I want to come in and talk to you about starting a new medication. And I went in and I told him, um, that I'm, I think that I drink too much. And he said, well, what do you mean by too much? And I said, well, I've, I've become a binge drinker and, and that's not good. I, 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 you know, I'll drink till I get sick. And he said, well, you know, just stop drinking. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Really helpful. Wow, that's $160 visit. Yeah. I never, th- I never thought of that. Yeah, wow, what a bold concept. Yeah. No, so, so, I, <laughs> so I said to him, I said, well, I've tried that a lot. And I've read this book and it talks about the deprivation effect and it really explains why I keep relapsing because mm-hmm. my brain is not fixed. And he, he just said, look, I'm not going to give you some hocus pocus uh, medication. And I said, will you at least look it up? And he said, no, I'm, I'm not interested. So I finally found a friend who had a more open-minded doctor, a uh, young guy lives near me and I went to him after, now at this point, I had to order the medication from India, of course, because mm-hmm. I wanted to start it. And then I finally went to this guy uh, um, to get a prescription. And, and he would, even after I'd already been on it for three to four months, he said, well, I don't want to give you a prescription for more than 15 tablets, which was completely counterintuitive. It's like, wait a minute, it's working for me. Yeah. Why won't you give me the full on prescription? But I think it was some sort of thing in his mind legally that he had to figure it out. But um, since then, uh, he treats dozens of people with TSM because he's seen the, the results himself and he's a big champion of TSM and he's on our website. If you live in Sherman Oaks, <laughs> that's who to go to. Um, yeah. but yeah, that was my, my sort of long winded journey, um, through the, the, the sort of hallways of addiction treatment and, and self-research. This is what another thing that really kind of scares me, um, because there's so much information on the internet now and because when i started there was very little there weren't any podcasts there weren't the facebook pages like your choice your recovery tsm warriors there wasn't the our forum uh there was there was no real information out there now that i've made the film one little pill written my book babylon confidential and now my nonprofit is five years old there there is solid information 
connection out there. But what bothers me is that people have a tendency to start comparing stories too often, and then they get either disappointed or they start to get in some sort of like competition mode where, oh, you reached extinction in three months. Oh, I'm in month eight. That means I'm going to die. You know, people get yeah. very dramatic about their results and, and right. people have to realize and anybody listening to this has to realize that that you, for instance, you had a beautiful, clean TSM experience and it's amazing. In six months, you before six months, you reached extinction. You rarely drink. You just drink socially and you're completely safe. Um, amazing. But there are some people whose addiction is more ingrained or maybe different. Um, their neural pathways are wired a little bit differently and it takes longer. I would say after the studies we did last year through C3 Foundation, we found that the majority of people take nine to 12 months for full mm -hmm. extinction. Mm -hmm. and, and that sounds daunting to anybody, but look at the alternative. Yeah, I can wait 10 months, <laughs> you know, versus 10 years of not Well, I'm, I'm either going to be dead yeah. or I'm going to be really, really happy and alive and healthy. And, it's, and all I'm going to have to do is pop a pill before I drink and yeah. keep a drink log and maybe be active in the community and live my life. I'm not asking you to go away and quit your job because you have to go to some $80,000 treatment center. <laughs> That's the beauty of TSM. But human nature dictates that people still get impatient mm -hmm. and they still want immediate results. And it's, it's unbelievable to me. It's like, look, the pill is generic. Even if you don't have insurance, it's a, a few dollars a pill. I mean, the worst I think I've ever seen, it was $8 a pill. How much do you pay for a pint of beer? Yeah, or a coaching session or with a or, or $500 an hour. Tony, Tony Robbins, you know, <laughs> you listen. Yeah. Jeez, that must have cost the size of a, a Subaru, you know? Uh, <laughs> so just for the listeners who have never heard of uh, the Sinclair Method, just how does it work? Like you take the pill one hour before you drink every time? You take, uh, now, now people um, and doctors so that your body can get used to the medication. Let me preface that by saying some people have absolutely no side effects. Some people feel a little nauseous. So we always tell people, eat something and start with half a tablet for the first four drinking sessions. At the fifth drinking session, you'll move up to the full pill. So you take the tablet, you wait one hour at least, and then you drink mindfully. And what does that mean? That means you take a drink and you say, well, am I drinking to get a buzz? Am I drinking because my husband's ticking me off? Am I drinking because uh, whatever? Um, drink mindfully. And then you have to write it down, say how much you drank. And every subsequent drink, you should ask yourself, do I really want the next drink? Or am I just doing it because, you know, Bob's buying the next round or because I'm out socializing? Maybe I, maybe... I should switch to soda water for one just as a test, but these are all early on. The bottom line is the most important thing is, and I know it sounds so easy. This is why people don't get how well it works because they don't believe it because yeah. you've got this cheap pill. All you do, take it, wait an hour, have a drink. Yeah. And, and event, eventually, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you lose interest. Yeah. And, and just to throw out some very rough numbers, but from what I've seen, it's like AA is like 10% effective and, and this is like 80 to 90% effective. Just well, yeah. um, there, there aren't hard 
statistics because, of course, it's anonymous. But Gabriel Glazer did a did an amazing in-depth uh, interview um, uh, research paper on AA, and uh, I believe she came up with a pretty hard five to eight percent. Mm -hmm. um, now, what's very interesting about that is that apparently about eight percent of the world can quit anything on their own. So. <laughs> Was it even There's a head? Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we all know we all know the person who you know one day went ah cigarettes are too expensive threw down the pack and went I'm done done <laughs> yeah yeah you know and and I've known people to quit heroin and coke I mean I know myself when I was you know I did some blow in the 80s and one day I just went this doesn't feel right and it's just just not fun this is lousy and I just never touched it again whereas alcohol stayed with me caffeine you know a little bit you know but i could i quit caffeine for six months easily just as a test i went on some little you know fad diet and then no sugar no caffeine whatever not a problem no headaches no irritation totally normal so everybody is wired differently hmm. but the whole the normally we find that 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 so if somebody takes the the, the pill for let's say in the first three usually the first three months, you have a lot of classic, I, I don't want to say there's, everybody's the same, obviously, I've said that they are not. You have some people who are immediate responders that they start doing it, and let's say they're drinking 90 units a week, they suddenly drop to 40. And that's like within four weeks, five weeks. So they, their drinking is half, more than halved within a month. We have other people who take the pill a few times and, and are sort of these miraculous responders who kind of go, eh, I don't want to drink anymore. You know, there are people online that you can listen to. Gary Bell is a perfect uh, example. I mean, he drank for a little bit on, on naltrexone and are faster than than the than the rest and then uh but most people you know i would say see a massive difference between month three and four because that's when your brain really starts to change and and you start noticing things like oh my gosh i left a half a beer and i paid for that beer <laughs> yeah I, I i have you know i have people emailing me saying i poured a drink down the drain that just that doesn't happen in my house <laughs> You know, and then yeah. and then I'll get another email from someone saying, "Okay, I just made you know Christmas is over, and tons of people brought booze. It's all still here. Mm -hmm. Champagne. There isn't you know quarter bottle of champagne. Who would keep undrunk champagne? It's gonna go in flat. You know, yeah. <laughs> they're, they're just overwhelmed at the disinterest in alcohol, and that's the beauty of it. Is it's not something that's forcing you to do something that's not natural. It's not asking you to." to engage in an activity on a daily basis that doesn't feel natural to you. All it's asking you to do is take this medication an hour before you drink. Right. That's it. Just, just take, and, and it, take this medication an hour before you drink. I look at it, I look at it like, a, like a prophylactic, like a condom, because especially if you're young and you haven't really developed uh, an AUD yet, but you've gone out and you've been in risky situations maybe young girls who've been sexually assaulted when they've been really drunk or young men that put themselves in a position of of maybe having attempted rape 
because they've, you know, they've been so under the influence or driving under the influence, all of these things. So I, I look at it for younger people like, why don't you just take this pill before you go out if you're going to be in a risky environment, jello shots, you know, this kind of thing. Um, take it, prepare yourself for the environment that you're going to be in. Mm-hmm. If you're going to be around somebody who triggers you to drink, then why not take the medication? Yeah. You know? Yeah. I love that. So, and just structurally for, for the listeners who haven't yet watched one little pill, which I highly recommend amazing documentary. Thank you so much for sharing that with the world, Claudia, but the, the way it works, I think is that um, it's, it's an opioid antagonist, which sort of blocks the endorphins, dopamine. So you're not getting, your brain isn't being rewarded for taking action and then you do it less and less because you're like, the brain's like, what's the point? I'm not getting that rush, those endorphins anymore. Yes. And yeah. some people will, will experience drinking pretty much the same on naltrexone as, as they normally did. Other people will miss that specific rush. Um, those are people that might take a little bit longer towards extinction or not. Who knows? Um, I would still say to somebody that, that's fearful why am I going to take something that's not going to make me want to drink more? It, it, you're still going to love the taste of the alcohol. You're still going to enjoy that relaxation effect. You might get a buzz. You can get drunk on naltrexone. The point is, hopefully, it's not going to make you want to get drunk. You're right. going to have just enough to be social and to not feel like you're the odd man out and, and maybe to be able to enjoy a nice glass of wine. But then you're not going to, your brain's not going to be able to keep going Where's the rest of the bottle? Where is that? I hope so-and-so goes to bed so I can sneak down and get more. The compulsion is gone. So yeah. that's why I don't, I don't really like what um, a lot of media outlets have described TSN as a pleasure killer. That's not true at all. First, first of all, it, it, it's the reward center of the brain. And that's often named the pleasure center. But if you look at it this way, if you're drinking just an amount to have a beautiful dinner or to go out with your buddies and have a cold beer or something like that. And you're, and you stop, then that's pleasurable drinking. Mm-hmm. What's mm-hmm. not pleasurable drinking is throwing up, passing out, making bad choices, drinking again in the morning. That's not pleasurable drinking. So I think that the media, when they came out, there was one smart post that was it's the anti-binge drinking pill that's what they came out when nalmaphene was supported by the nhs in the uk mm. and i and i agreed with that it's the anti-binge drinking pill it's it's mm. it's but it's more than that it really returns you back to the person you were you were before the addiction crept in yes uh, you know, yeah. and I think you can testify to that, right? hundred million percent. And I just want to ask you a couple like little structural questions about using it because I really leaned on your documentary heavily because I, and I didn't, and I found some forums like Reddit has a forum um, where I was able to connect with some people there, but you say, um, because what I think this pill does is it sort of blocks and prevents the reward center. So you say, or people say, take it and then wait an hour. What I was doing, and I still do, is I like set my phone timer, and then the minute it hits one hour, then I'm like, okay, I can drink. But 
but is it okay to wait longer? Number one, oh, like, yeah. yeah. And then number two, like, but what if there's something really healthy that I want to do in like two hours, like weightlifting, but I want to feel those endorphins. Am I supposed to wait like five hours? Just how, <laughs> or am I overthinking the whole thing? Look, look, yeah, you're overthinking the whole thing. It's like people say to me, well, if I take it, am I going to enjoy sex? And I'm like, okay, if you're taking it before a date and you go out and you have a couple of drinks, you tell me if the sex was good. I mean, that's, kind of, <laughs> that's really kind of not, not that that's kind of, you know, yeah. apples and pears. I mean, yeah. it really doesn't depend on this. This isn't going to deaden that, that, and, and also people panic about the workout things. Like, well, if I drank until 10 PM and then I get up and I want to do my morning workout, is it going to be ruined? Hell no. In fact, I used to take naltrexone and then go on a walk for an hour. Hmm. Okay. To kill the time, you know, when I, okay. when I started, I'd go work out. Now, mind you, you know, Dr. Escapa will say, well, that's not really what, you know, what, you know, you want to have a dual aspect of this. The dual aspect therapy of TSM is that on your, your alcohol-free days, your drink-free days, you want to engage in the best endorphin-producing activity you can. Right. However, People get really anal about that when they read the book and they think that suddenly they can't eat spicy food, make love, or work out on days that they're mm. drinking or taking naltrexone. And that's just, that's just not true. Okay. You know, this is anecdotal experience and, and evidence that, that we've collected over the past near decade. And all that I can tell you is just you can live your life. And then when you get to the point when you have alcohol-free naltrexone-free days, like a particular day, and it may, may fall on a day that you have some time, absolutely do something like a hike or, or, or something stimulating. Yeah. And it should feel amazing. You know, that runner's high, that, that kind of thing should be really, really wonderful. As far as, oh my gosh, I popped the naltrexone and um, I had anticipated drinking in an hour, but my buddy wants to lift weights right now. Okay, if that's ever going to happen. Mm -hmm. So what? You're going to get a workout in. Yeah. So okay. It's not like you're suddenly going to die or something. <laughs> you know, it's, you're going to get a workout. You're still going to have some sort of wonderful flush from working out. But, but I think it's, it, people really start to overthink this. And, and as far as setting your timer, it's because in the beginning you're so concerned with control. And mm -hmm. that's a good thing to be. You want to be, you want to be as fastidious as possible insofar as compliance and and just you setting that notification is great because it also gives us control it makes us accountable in our yeah. recovery so yeah. if i'm taking if i know that i'm going to be in a situation where there's going to be alcohol i'm going to take at six o'clock let's say i'm going to take the pill at 4 30 and maybe even before i leave the house have a tiny bit of alcohol just just in case, let's say they don't serve alcohol till eight or whatever. That's what I used to do back in the old days. You know, yeah. it was this massive protection plan, constantly yeah. going, okay, well, okay, it's Sunday and I don't know if they'll be. So I would always protect myself because then I, I knew that I was, I was okay for the duration of it. But the most important thing is to wait at least an hour because okay. it needs to get into the brain and into the bloodstream. So, the, so what you don't want to do is go, oh, Oh yeah, I'd love to have a drink, pop pill with the drink. Or yeah. say, well, it's been 32 mm -hmm. minutes, that's cool. No, it, it has to be in your system. 
Yeah. You drink. And, and people get really kind of annoyed about this rule. But when you think about it, it's one rule. And, and if you had a life-saving yeah. medication that you had to take every morning, you, and if you didn't take it, you would die. You would you mess rule. around with that? <laughs> would, you follow the rule. would you go, well, it's eight o'clock and I kind of don't feel like popping. I have to make Naltrex on your life-saving medication. That's why we do the, the keychain program where you always have it on your key. Whether, I mean, a lot of people who barely even drink anymore still have that Naltrexone on them. Mm-hmm. Some people wear it on a chain. Some people have it on a keychain, piece of jewelry, as a reminder that you're always in remission. You are always in remission, and you can't drink without it. Period. Mm-hmm. That's so. That's so great. And and kind of just as we wrap up here, I just want to also say that when I saw the doctor about it, she clearly did not know really anything about naltrexone. She prescribed it to me, but she said she wants me taking it all the time like at least once a day, even if I'm not drinking. And I was just like, yeah. and I, I knew I had to say okay for her to give me the medication. But like the fact that I knew more about this than the doctor, I was like, oh. But you have to understand, you have to understand, first of all, doctors aren't given a lot of um, addiction education during the, the time that they go to school. Yep. Second of all, when the FDA approved naltrexone, it was with abstinence, simply because that's the way they felt comfortable prescribing it. Right. So that's why there's been... So, so that's why it's been so difficult. It's not only the monetary aspect of it. Nobody can really make a lot of money off. Now, I mean, look at what we do at C3. I provide you a free movie, go to Amazon <laughs> <laughs> or Tubi and yeah. watch my film. And then, you know, ask your doctor for a prescription. And, and here we've given you a forum, online resources, whatever you want. It, you can recover for a couple, the price of the medication. You can recover right now for the price of the medication, which for some people with insurance, it's 10 bucks a month yeah. and they don't drink every day. So they've got surplus pills. But as far as your doctor goes, that's simply a lack of education. And that's what, what our mission is now is to educate as many doctors as possible so that they're not prescribing it incorrectly, which is usually in the morning and abstinent because frankly, most people, by the time they start craving, it's late afternoon, early evening, and now the medication is wearing off. So it's, 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 it's really kind of a, it's not a great way to prescribe it. And you're going to block a lot of endorphins that, that endorphins that occur naturally during the day. Exactly. So, so I would say that your doctor, bravo, that uh, she gave it to you, but yeah. I hope that you send her a link to one little pill and maybe a PDF of, of the book. Why not? Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, and you should. Yeah. Absolutely. And and that's what I'm trying to do with this episode and, and just carry forward this mission to share it with more people. And one thing we were talking about offline before we started was potential applications. I'm curious, have you ever seen this be successful with other compulsion, compulsive behaviors? Yes. And if so, what do people need to be careful about, for example, if they're doing it for like opioid? Uh, well, as far as dual diagnoses, I've seen a lot of success with online addiction and gambling and alcohol. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if one is an opiate addict, you, you have to be completely clean before you start naltrexone therapy for opiate addiction, because think about it, it's an opiate antagonist. So if you take it, you're going to go into withdrawal. It's going to eliminate the opiates in your system. Mm-hmm. So that means you're going to go into, that could be very dangerous. So, but once you get clean off opiates, 
if you take it, that's why they offer, I think, the long-term Vivitrol shot so somebody doesn't have to physically take the pill. That's why antabuse didn't work because you had to take the pill so that you wouldn't drink. But most people that were alcohol dependent were like, well, I just won't take the pill because it's going to make me sick. See, yeah. it, wasn't, it wasn't fixing your brain. It was simply a very expensive medication that was making you ill. But mm. if you have the opiate implant, opiate blocker implant, like the naltrexone implant or the Vivitrol shot in your system and you're an opiate addict, then if you do happen to be in a situation where there's opiates and you do take an opiate, you won't get re-addicted because it won't have any effect on you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's amazing. So uh, any final words you want to leave with listeners today, just how they could either start or carry forward their journey of recovery or implementing these amazing tools we now have? Well, certainly I would recommend if you have a loved one or a friend, first of all, please try not to be judgmental. Understand that this is a yeah. disorder of the brain and that the person is not choosing the bottle over you. This is, this is a brain disorder and it's a disease. Um, so maybe look into my website, c3foundation.org. And maybe if you're a family member and you have somebody who's suffering, sit down with them. My documentary is under an hour long. It's really succinct and shows you real people on it and the science behind TSM. And you can watch it on Amazon for free. If you, like I said, Tubi. Um, it's just a really great tool to sit down with them and say, look, you don't even have to give up drinking. You just have to take this medication. This is amazing. Yeah. And as far as we know, um, you know, obviously uh, opiate addiction and uh, pregnancy are the only contraindications. So, so most people need to talk to a doctor. <laughs> Let me preface that um, and see if their liver is all you know checked out and everything, and that they can take any opiate antagonist. But it is FDA approved. It is uh, it's safe. It's non-addictive. And just for others out there, if you need resources, we I mean all of this social media has helped so much. Like I mentioned before. Sinclair Warriors, um, Your Choice, Your Recovery, of course, Options Save Lives, which is our forum. And if you go to my website, you will find a, a plethora of information, including the scientific research papers and podcasts and radio shows like this. So you can listen and learn and, and spread the word yourself. And if you're in need, um, send an email through the website and it will reach me directly. And I'm happy to help. That's amazing. Well, I just, it scares me to think, what if I didn't see your documentary? What, you know, and, and it makes me so grateful at the same time and happy. And I'm so glad to be able to share this with the audience. And thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. Well, thank you. And it's people like you who, who do the work that I can't do at that. You know what I mean? You're paying it forward. So I'm, I'm much appreciative of your efforts as well. So yeah, well, my Have pleasure. A- a wonderful new year. I'm so happy for you.